Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Glenn Deason, who is a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway and also editor at Russia and Global Affairs. His research focuses on the political economy of a greater Eurasia. We'll be discussing his new book, Great Power Politics in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And how is life in Norway, Dr. Deason? Uh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, no, Norway is good. Well, summertime uh, is better than winter, obviously. Um, so uh, actually, I only recently came back to Norway. I was working abroad for the past 20 years. So yeah, it's good to be back home. Uh, okay. That, yeah, that, that's that's good. Me too. I was <laughs> abroad and I'm, I'm back home now. I've been following your uh, op-eds uh, in, in different places uh, on, on Russia Today, for example, for some time. And you know, I, I learned of your new book, and uh, I think that you hit uh, one of the most important themes in the world today. You know, the, the, those two themes of the great powers and the conflicts now that are being generated between the great powers, Russia, China, U.S., uh, and the Great Reset, as I call it, or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, you know, we're at a crossroads, as we were, I think, a century ago. Uh, we, we face, in one sense, economic uh, oblivion, the bursting of the global debt bubble, there is the potential for great military conflict between the great powers yet again. Uh, there's the opportunity for some states or blocks to rise in status and for others to fall way behind. The technologies of the fourth industrial revolution will determine many of these factors, as well as whether you know mankind will live in a freer world or one that is more authoritarian and dystopian. Uh, at the beginning of your book, you cite former uh, Russian foreign minister Igor Ivanov Quote, history has taught us that humanity's transition from one world order to another has always been driven by the accumulation of new production technologies with wars and revolutions usually acting as a catalyst, end quote. So um, you, you give an interesting, useful history at the start of your book, looking back at the previous industrial revolutions and how Britain harnessed the first industrial revolution to cement itself as the global empire. Germany, France and the U.S. followed. China, Russia fell behind. So now we're in this fourth industrial revolution. Russia, China, US, EU have the opportunity, I guess, to upend the chessboard. But it seems that the countries that um, are working with uh, AI the most and with the big data are well ahead of the pack, such as China and the US. So, you know, do you see us uh, at this great historic crossroads and mo moment of tectonic shift? Um, and, you know, do you see is this a moment for great opportunity as well as uh, catastrophic uh, danger? Uh, yeah, well, it goes on this scale between uh, great opportunities, but uh, also uh, the possibility for uh, yeah, great destruction and a lot of challenges. Now, um, yeah, as you correctly pointed out, uh, well, I guess the te technology is often not appreciated enough uh, in terms of it, its impact on great power politics, because it, it really has a very transformative power in terms, in terms of changing not just societies within but also the relationship between states, that is how they compete, uh, and also the distribution of power. Now, yes, you point out uh, that yeah, the, the previous industrial revolutions very much yeah, changed the world as it was. Now, obviously, uh, China and Russia fell behind, and they paid a very big price. So both of them were uh, yeah, de de defeated by the British in the mid-19th century. So obviously, the Chinese with the uh, opium wars, which... Uh, was largely because they've fallen behind on the Industrial Revolution and the Russians in the Crimean War in the 1850s. So they both, uh, yes, uh, suffered greatly for this, while those who managed uh, the proper, properly the Industrial Revolutions, they 
yeah, they, they rose to power. So uh, this is, is yeah, seen as a, an opportunity to redeal the card, if you want, by many states. Now, obviously, you're right. Uh, the, the main two powers to look at is obviously China and the United States as the main yeah, incumbent and, uh, and, the, and the challenger. But, uh, you, but you also have other countries, uh, including Russia, who has, uh, uh, it seems, uh, it, it can play a, a big role. It can make a great leap forward uh, or it can fall behind again. Uh, it's not really determined yet uh, how, how it's, how it's going to be able to uh, yeah, play its cards. And after you're reading your book, I, I was thinking maybe I will have to change the name of this podcast uh, from Geopolitics and Empire to Geoeconomics uh, and Empire, because you write, quote, the concept of technolo technological sovereignty recognizes that industrial capacity and state sovereignty are closely linked. Dominant states that fail to extend and cement their technological leadership can descend into irrelevance as the technologies that underpin their primacy become outdated. Uh, end quote. You were just kind of touching on that. But then you write, uh, quote, geoeconomics is used here as the point of departure and the main variable to explore great power or rivalry. Great power politics after the Cold War has shifted from geopolitics to geoeconomics as power derives increasingly from the control over international markets rather than merely mili military hardware uh, and territory, end quote. So, you know, I, I think your point on geoeconomics uh, uh, surpassing geopolitics perhaps uh, in importance uh, is a good one. Can you tell us more about, you know, the rise uh, and importance of geoeconomics. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so most of my focus is on the economic aspect. Uh, again, the, there's a lot of literature out there on the on how this is impacting military technology, which shouldn't be understated either. Uh, however, I, I look mostly at the economic aspects. Uh, well, in, in geoeconomics, we you know we we'll, we look towards how economic power translates into political power. And uh, effectively, states, they tend to intervene in the marketplace to establish uh, asymmetrical interdependence. So the less dependent side in any relationship is able to extract certain uh, political power from the other. So from this perspective, uh, technology, uh, being, being technological leaders is, is, is quite important. And, uh, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, well, it's, it's always been this way. Uh, this is why great powers in order to, uh, well, be great powers. They really need to have what's then referred to as uh, technological sovereignty. That is a uh, certain control over the main technologies there are. So this was, um, again, in the 19th century, it meant something different. Uh, at that point, uh, nation building was very closely linked to industrial power. Uh, this was also experienced for the United States. The main reason they began to emulate the European manufacturing societies was exactly because they wanted to uh, break away uh, from this excessive reliance on on British industries. Um, now, uh, this was then also emulated by other countries such as uh, yeah, Germany, France, Russia, and the objective was then develop their own manufacturing based around industries in order to gain uh, economic independence from Britain. Because without it, they wouldn't have political independence. Now, this is the same today, obviously, but. Uh, but now in the fourth industrial revolution. So it's very different technologies. You have these new digital platforms uh, capable of uh, yeah, manipulating the physical world. And, and, and within this format, uh, we see, uh, again, and not just manufacturing power, but, but uh, countries seeking to have uh, technolo technological sovereignty uh, you know, over various uh, uh, digital platforms. 
So um, it's uh, uh, yeah, it does have an enduring relevance. This uh, this geoeconomics. Uh, yeah, I, I can just maybe add that uh, I think for many they kind of believe that the world had shifted towards uh, liberal economics, all free trade, no state intervention. But but typically we only have uh, liberal economic systems only form when there's a strong um, when there's a strong uh, concentration of economic power under hegemon. So we had the you know Britain in the 19th century and then the US from the mid 20th century. Now under such form uh, such power distribution, it is the interest of economic hegemon to uh, to liberalize trade to cement its competitive position. Um, now, I think as through the Cold War, we kind of had this belief, well, many had, that we through liberalism we had transcended, uh, well, essentially geoeconomics or neo-mercantilism. Uh, but, but it was a very, very unique time. I mean, uh, uh, the main adversaries of the United States were all communist states, so they were very much decoupled from international markets. Uh, meanwhile, all of America's allies were very much dependent on the United States for security. So uh, they, uh, so this had a strong impact in terms of mitigating uh, geoeconomic rivalry between them. So, but, um, uh, but, but now we've seen more or less all this uh, bro- broken down. And uh, now um, all the major powers are very much speaking quite openly about the need for geoeconomic power. Uh, just, yes, yeah, sorry, just one last example with the European Union. Uh, again, their whole ideology for so long was, you know, to have been this uh, liberal project, post-sovereign, uh, free market. And, and now they effectively uh, turn completely around and recognize, no, in order to survive in the new world, we need, uh, well, using other words than technological sovereignty, but uh, referring to strategic autonomy, developing European sovereignty. So very much the same language as Russia and China, uh, arguing that uh, in order for a great power to be great, it needs to control its own technologies and its own economic power. So it's, uh, uh, it is, yeah, um, uh, I guess the Cold War will be seen as a great exception under very unique uh, circumstances. Yeah, and maybe to delve into that uh, a bit deeper, you know, in your book, you talk about the splinter Net uh, the inter- the nationalization uh, of the internet or the breakup or territorialization uh, of the internet. You know we know that the U.S. U.S. Uh, big tech works with the Pentagon. I mean, indeed, the Pentagon seed funded some, a lot of U.S. big tech, such as Facebook and, and Google. Um, and you know they work together against foreign nations, some, uh, oftentimes in uh, regime change um, operations. Uh, you've cited how Facebook, you know, works with. NATO. Uh, in your book, you talk about how they work with the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, they police their platforms for dissent. Uh, you know, my, my so my own American government and American big tech has you know deplatformed me from Patreon, on, and I even got a mention in the Associated Press uh, by the Atlantic Council. So, but then on the other hand, you know, for example, Russia isn't much better. Uh, I was living in, in Kazakhstan which has often similar policies as Russia. And my personal email service was blocked both uh, in Russia and Kazakhstan. And I had to go through three VPNs be- before I found one uh, that worked. And then, so you're also, you see, you're talking about this, like each country, each region now is developing its own in-house uh, technologies. And I guess one reason for that, if they don't, then they will be dominated by foreign uh, big tech, uh, as well as the, the countries from which this foreign big tech 
comes from, which is, I guess, a big threat, no, uh, to, to themselves. Uh, and as well as many countries who don't develop these systems, they will fall uh, way behind. So, so could you kind of speak more on, on these issues? Well, uh, yeah, well, what you're referring to now is uh, the aspect of the, yeah, the technologies for, for communication. And uh, obviously, this, uh, yeah, one should be careful not to divide into good and bad countries or great powers because they're all kind of dealing with the same issues. Now, you know, for all countries, they, when it comes to disseminating information, you more or less have to think about yeah, three poles. Uh, on one hand, you have the, the, the government who needs to, would like to control uh, somewhat the narrative and disseminating information. And then you also have uh, the public. Now, uh, usually in a in a, yeah, in a stable society, you find some kind of a balance between the state and the public. But then also you have a third party, which are foreign governments. So you have this uh, yeah a, a strange competition. Now, obviously, the effort to uh, nationalize the digital space or the splinternet or balkanizing the internet is to make it easier to cut off one country from uh, yeah, from the wider internet. Uh, now, China and Russia obviously been working towards this end, and um, and uh, yeah, it's it's seen as a way to insulate themselves a little bit from from the United States. But you also see the U.S. doing the same to some extent. Uh, they they no longer want to use you know uh, Chinese technologies. They don't want uh, Russia's Kaspersky anymore. They so they're all they're all blocking uh, each other's technological platforms. And insisting that in order to have uh, proper security, uh, uh, yeah, the domestically they should rely only on, or primarily at least, on domestic platforms, um, and also again with Russia and China have the ability to cut themselves off from the wider internet and solely rely on a domestic internet. So, uh, yeah, taking control over the over the, uh, the the domestic space. Now, obviously, obviously, the main problem you have is many governments will do this. Uh, quite reasonably to protect themselves from hostile foreign powers. But in that process, uh, they also changed the uh, power between state and people. So we, we, we see this also in the United States, but you're very correct. You also see the same in Russia and Kazakhstan and China as well. If they say, you know, we have to protect from foreign governments, that additional power the, power the government grants itself is also used against uh, it, its own people. And um, again, it's not just, uh, you know, Russian... Uh, uh, well, uh, news services who are being uh, labeled, uh, you know, foreign agents and all in the United States, they're also now censoring their own people because once the government have this instrument of power to censor, uh, as the tech, tech giants have, uh, the, the problem is if they also become involved in very polarized domestic politics. And I guess in the United States, we see that to some extent, the tech giants aligning themselves more with the Democrats and uh, you know, fighting what they call, for example, Russian influence, uh, which is then linked to conservatives, and it's a it's a very uh, yeah, messy ordeal because uh, uh, we don't really have uh, any new ways of uh, uh, yeah, addressing these uh, new new technologies. So again, I have, the, I have one chapter in the book where I compare again the internet to the printing press because we've we've gone through this before, and uh, yeah, so. Based on that history, one could expect some yeah, chaotic years ahead. Yeah, I, I've told this story before. When I was in Kazakhstan, I came into re direct contact uh, with the youth that I was working with 
who were working with unwittingly the, the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, and Open Society, the whole regime change apparatus uh, in Kazakhstan. I even uh, warned the Kazakh government. And so, as you say, like they need to put protections into place to protect themselves. But at the same time, it's like, you know, which I, and me as a foreigner, like, okay, I, I agree. You, you do need to protect yourself, but okay, can I use my email? You know, <laughs> can I use, <laughs> can I use VPN? I mean, you guys are going a little, a little bit too far, you know, come on. I, I mean, how can I, you need email to do everything? So um, another theme of your book, you talk about industrial revolutions, uh, how they redistribute and reorganize uh, power. And it seems what we've seen so far, our current transition is in a sense, doing away with democracy and and you you mentioned you know big tech is now getting all this power big finance big tech and it's like almost we're moving towards some kind of neo techno feudalism uh the middle class is being wiped out uh suffering the sovereignty uh, of the nation state is, is being diluted uh you write quote if the state does not assert control over industry industry will increasingly assert its influence over the state this dilemma is solved by using reg regulation to transform tech giants into national champions aligned with state interests, a tactic that resembles the fascist political economy, end quote. And it does seem we're moving toward, you know, authoritarian fascist dystopian technocracy ruled by an arist aristocratic uh, elite. Uh, indeed, you write that the U.S. is becoming um, an authoritarian corporate state. And you cite Edward Lutwak in saying that, quote, fascism is the wave of the future, end quote. So, you know, how do you see this tra trajectory that we are on towards fascism or authoritarianism? And how bad do you think can, how bad do you think things can get? And is there any hope kind of like of returning to, to liberty? Uh, well, ideally, oh, yes, of course, we should find a way back to liberty. And obviously, uh, Edward Lutwak in, in no way advocated that, you know, Fascism is a great idea. He just argued that the political economies are beginning to, uh, to, 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 to give that indication now that this is uh, how, how they're shaping up. Now, uh, there is a tendency towards, uh, well, inclination towards more authoritarian systems. Uh, the, the first is uh, uh, because, uh, uh, yeah, we, we see that the, the, the relationship between capital and labor appears to be uh, decoupling. Now, this was something that was already recognized in the first industrial revolution, that is, which then yeah, resulted in capitalist economic systems because you had to manage the relationship between uh, capital and labor. Now, uh, what was discovered is with each technological innovation, uh, you have increased productivity, and then where, where does that extra revenue go? Now, uh, we see that this tends to shift more towards capital. Thus, concentrating power. Now, again, I pointed out this shouldn't be anything controversial. This is again why you have labor unions. So you see collective bargaining power versus capital. Now, for, for but for a long time, uh, I guess it, it looked like there might be. I mean, the, the glory time of capitalism is seemed to be from you know from the Second World War until the seventies, late seventies, early eighties. Uh, as at, at this time, you saw. Uh, the need for increased, um, uh, well, more, more technological advanced production equipment needed more skilled workers, so they needed a more co uh, more monetary compensi uh, co uh, compensation. Sorry. Uh, so, anyways, uh, you saw somewhat uh, the money being distributed nice, uh, well, somewhat evenly with labor, but this began to stop in the 1980s and pretty much stagnated uh, since. 
So you have more and more concentration of wealth. And obviously, since the global financial crisis, uh, yeah, the, the middle class has been uh, yeah, decimated, uh, especially in the United States. But uh, again, I'd just like to point out that this is not like an ideological argument. And I say that because that was the argument of Karl Marx, which was uh, he expected capitalism to implode uh, because uh, at, at one point, uh, yeah, all the money would go to capital, capital would be more and more dominant. And at some point, uh, yeah, the laborers would stand up and uh, seize control uh, over the means of production. But again, this is also from uh, the free market capitalists. Uh, so John Maynard Keynes or before uh, David Ricardo, they were both saying the same thing. They recognized that as machinery became more productive, uh, yeah, the, the, the wealth would concentrate more and more. So there had to be some kind of um, ways to redistribute the wealth or break up the monopolies. But the problem these days in international markets is how, how can you break up any any of these big monopolies? Uh, they have these discussions in the US, but if you break up Google, if you break up Facebook or Twitter, they're not going to have the same attraction anymore. Also, they're not going to be competitive against the foreign technological platforms. So how do you have a platform which is strong enough to compete in international markets, but not so strong that it will dominate the domestic political system? So it's a very... Uh, yeah, so I guess it's easy, it's a... Um, to lean towards these national champions or powerful states and the companies, but tied closely to the states, is a very natural, uh, uh, well, attractive uh, solution. But again, it's a, uh, it's very much not, <laughs> not, uh, it doesn't uh, harmonize very well with the concept of liberty or democracy or freedom. So, so it is very problematic, and it's not quite clear how how did they will deal with this so again the discussion in the united states should it break up these tech giants should they absorb them into the state so becoming effectively utilities uh, either way the, the, the debate is always should it be strong corporate power or more powerful state at no point uh, is there a, a good solution to break it down to people power uh, so uh, it's uh yeah this um uh, i'm 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 more of a pessimist on on this issue i guess uh, also, I added that there seems to be a tendency, well, in the past, you had an, uh, some competitive advantage to more liberal countries, uh, with, yeah, freer uh, markets and also more, op more open political systems. Now, I think in this industrial revolution, we see a more of a tendency to an authoritarian advantage. That is, uh, uh, as you're in the race for artificial intelligence, for example, you need two things. You need a lot of data and strong computing power. Now. Uh, authoritarian countries like China, they can get all the data they want. They can just extract uh, anything, uh, put up uh, cameras anywhere, uh, any personal information, uh, not, nothing's off the table. So um, they can ex also they can experiment with things. They can do uh, a new innovative payment system uh, without caring too much or being too concerned about legislation because if something goes wrong, they can always reverse it and just uh, go, go back to the way things were. So it, they don't have to go through all this uh, different uh, stages, like you know, we saw with the COVID, that they are able to respond much faster because uh, yeah, don't have to worry too much about uh, civil liberties. So, um, so, uh, so I guess the, this also creates an, uh, I guess, an inclination for liberal states as well, uh, liberal democracies, to adopt more authoritarianism to yeah, to, to take advantage of this, which is. Also, what you've seen in the United States now, this uh, this idea, you know, of, of all, all the countries in the world who had put most most value in freedom of speech, 
it was the United States. But now, effectively, we have the government hand in hand with these tech giants, and the tech giants censor anyone they want. And the government can say, hey, it's uh, it's a uh, you know private industry; they can have their own uh, services, or you know, a Facebook Supreme Court. They they just can make up entirely new rules. So, uh, if if you would only said ten years ago. Uh, to the average American that this would happen, you would have, uh, you know, Twitter shutting down major newspapers, censoring people, uh, you know, they, m- most people would have thought it's, you know, belong to some dystopian novel, but uh, we're becoming more and more uh, used to it. And this is, again, part of the, what we talked about before, the government being able to take back more control uh, over, uh, you know, over communication and, and technologies. So it's, um, yeah, it's a yeah, it's a <laughs> concerning uh, development. Yeah, I, I'm pessimistic, uh, like you uh, as well. I remember I did an interview with uh, Greg Greg Copley, who's the head of a strategic defense institute. He he said that a few months ago that democracy is gone. You know, according to him, that we're entering into a, an age of authoritarianism. What that exact form will look like is yet to be determined. Uh, I was reading. Yesterday, CNN was discussing how these Western liberal democracies um, who've taken all of these emergency powers because of the pandemic uh, don't want to give them back. So, And that's usually in history the norm, right? Once powers are taken, we don't go back to, to the freedom. So that's uh, frightening. Uh, and as, as you mentioned, some of the solutions as a result of the concentration of of wealth uh, and the capital, you know, um, this universal basic income, you know, uh, how do we solve some of these other problems? So now they're talking about universal basic income. Um, I think Biden just announced that he's going to start giving uh, money to, to, to children in America and, and adults, sort of like a universal basic income. And uh, the previous economist that I've interviewed, Finnish, Tuomas uh, Malinen, was commenting, saying that they've tried this in Finland and it's it's not going to work. Uh, and as well, it creates this dependency on the state. So it's like if you don't do what the government wants, they can just turn off your univer- universal basic income, which makes me think of another part of your book where, where you discuss the Chinese social credit system. And I feel that this is spreading to other parts uh, of the world now. You were talking about other countries that are working with China, like in Africa or South America, who, who, where China is exporting this technology to them. I just read, you know, I had been living in Kazakhstan. I just, I couldn't believe it. Yesterday, they reported the Almaty airport is installing effectively the social credit system. You can, now you cannot go into the Almaty airports in Kazakhstan without downloading this COVID QR code app. Um, and, you know, my belief is that that's just the first step. Later, you know, when COVID passes, they will just keep this the same system and just, you know, add modules to it, you know, link it to your bank account or reputation or social media. And so they're now installing these systems. So, you know, what are your thoughts of this Chinese social credit system and, and whether you see it spreading to other parts of the world? Yeah, well, the, the social credit system does seem very, very dystopian. Again, for those not familiar with it, it's the yeah the the the, the Chinese government they uh, give you points or, or 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 withdraw points based on your behavior. So if you're associating with uh, uh, dubious characters, if you're not calling your parents enough, you know you cross the road when it's a red light. Uh, yeah, the you know you curse, criticize the government. Uh, suddenly your credit score goes down and your ability to travel uh, or buy a train train ticket uh, suddenly uh, goes away. So it's a very, again, it, it's a very scary 
possibility when the government gains this much power. Now, that's why I'm also very skeptical about the idea that our, uh, you know, our, our liberties and uh, like our, our norms or values will somehow save us because often we see that uh, as power shifts, uh, how how values are expressed changed. I mean, uh, we don't have this uh, credit point system uh, in Western countries, but we but we see we're beginning to put in place uh, uh, well similar ideas, but they're always expressed uh, in terms of of good values. So, for example, uh, you mentioned you've been deplatformed or suddenly can't use Patreon anymore, or, you know, you associate with some right-wing groups, now you can't use your Visa card anymore, or, you know, you get to express uh, the wrong opinion. You think Trump is a great guy, suddenly now you lose your Facebook uh, account and your ability to communicate with the rest of the world. So there is this, uh, already we see these tendencies across Western societies, also in academia, as it is, uh, more and more self-censorship. You're a bit, you, you know, that not all speech is tolerated, but it's always, uh, the, the values always uh, follow. So there's uh, it's supposed to be well-intentioned. First it began, you know, hate speech. Don't, uh, you know, don't, uh, uh, you know, for, for, for neo-Nazis or something we can all agree on, some horrible person, uh, say Hitler is the best, okay, we should be deplatforming. And then slowly uh, the concept of hate and racism, everything is uh, becomes a bit more watered out and, Suddenly now, you know, you use the wrong gender uh, pronouns on someone and you're off Twitter for a week. So it's just very, uh, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a scary trend. <laughs> and um, so again, we don't have the credit system yet, but uh, I guess the, the COVID thing um, has pushed us a little bit more in that direction. Uh, again, you can see how fast it's happening as well. The case in Britain, for example, is only, uh, a few months ago, they said, no, no, under no circumstances will there be any uh, COVID uh, passport, you know, vaccination passport that will only allow you to travel if you're taking a vaccination. And and now it's, no, no, it's now, now it's fine. So it was normalized very, very quickly. So so you have, uh, again, it's not conspiracy theories. It's uh, it's very much in your face and, uh, and they're very, op- very open about it. So, uh, but it's always has the best justifications. But at the end of the day, uh, what was the norms and ideas about the proper role of government and the relationship between the state and its people uh, is changing quite rapidly. And uh, yeah, as you also correctly pointed out, there's few historical cases when the public hands over an immense amount of power to the state and then the pandemic is over, for example, and the state says, well, okay, we don't need this anymore. Uh, here you go. We're not going to track your behavior anymore or you know, like these COVID passports, I think the people are worried about digital COVID passports staying there after the pandemic is gone. I think that's very reasonable. Uh, but again, the, the technologies are in place. Uh, they, they probably won't go away. Yeah, uh, I, I want to get back to the, the question of the great powers. Um, in your book, you write, uh, quote, China has emerged as a principal challenger to the U.S. due to its ability and intention to assert technological leadership, its control over the geoeconomic lever- levers of power and to drive and, and its drive to develop its military force. China was the largest power in the world for centuries. Um, and as you mentioned, it ended in the 1850s with the opium wars. And, you know, today there's all this talk about U.S.-China Thucydides trap, you know, you know, World War Three breaking out in Taiwan, South China Sea, wherever you like. Um, and y- you also cite, again, Edward Lutwak um, saying, quote, methods of commerce 
are displacing military methods with disposable capital in lieu of firepower, civilian innovation in lieu of military technical advancement, and market penetration in lieu of garrisons uh, and bases. So for it seems that the 21st, you know, end quote, it seems that the 21st century warfare between the great powers will be amorphous, hybrid, asymmetrical, unconventional, informational, you know, geoeconomic, as opposed to traditional you know, geopolitical military conflict. You don't touch so much on that uh, in the book, but it seems that in the near term, at least, uh, there's a decrease in the chance uh, of a World War III. What's your thought on, you know, the great powers and, and whether or not they will come into, you know, direct military conflagration? Although we did see what was happening recently with the U.S. and Ukraine uh, on the border with Russia, that could have uh, escalated, but you know, what are your thoughts in terms of you know another global conflict breaking out? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, well, my main problem here when I started the book was uh, how do you measure the impact of technology on great power politics because it does play out in many ways. Like you correct, military power is one of them. Uh, also, you have uh, the economic rivalry, and then you have. Uh, uh, the communication aspects, so it's also quite uh, central in the information war, but it's also ability to keep stable societies as they undergo this transformation. So there's a lot of uh, areas uh, where, where, where it impacts this great power rivalry. Now, uh, the main the main conflict, the way I see it playing out, would be obviously uh, the United States versus China. Now, for a while, uh, especially since the early 90s, you had this... Uh, uh, very clear international distribution of the power. That is, the United States had cemented its role as the technological leader. And uh, uh, all the trade agreements at the time were promoting this very uh, uh, extreme international division of labor. So uh, the United States would do all the innovation, the high-tech stuff, the, 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 the top-tier uh, high economic activities, while China would do uh, well assembly and uh, uh, I used the example that, you know, the United States should invent the iPhone, the Chinese can assemble it, and this is how the free market should supposed to work, because they're not really in direct competition. But uh, but this created problems for many, many ways, for many reasons. For one, the, uh, the United States, the idea that it could only control the top tiers didn't really work, because when they, yes, they, they were able to, the new trade agreements, which extended intellectual property rights, they also outsourced a lot of their own production. So. Uh, what they realized, you know, societies consist of people. It's not just numbers. So, uh, so the so the tech and financial industries they prospered greatly, but uh, through the rest of the country, it was more or less gutted. Uh, all the manufacturing jobs were sent overseas. So you had uh, now you had a very s- a split society. Um, so th- so this created a problem for the United States, but also uh, so it has this domestic um, uh, component to it. Uh, and that if the United States doesn't have any stability within, it can't mobilize its resources towards uh, achieving its objectives. Again, the, if the people of the country don't even uh, consider the ideals of the country or the interests to be the same, it's very difficult. Uh, however, uh, possibly more important would be what China has done, because uh, um, what China has done now is exactly the same as what the Americans, the Germans and Russians did in the 19th century. That is, uh, how, how, should a, how should China compete its infant industries? How could it compete with the United States? Again, U.S. products are high quality and low cost, so they're mature. Uh, and they, in a free market, they can outcompete all Chinese industries, which are low quality and high price. 
So again, what they did in the 19th century is very easy. They, you know, they subsidize uh, their own industries, use some uh, tariffs, uh, some and also non-tariff barriers. So, uh, so the Chinese have pushed a lot of money into developing its own technological platforms, rapidly climbing up these global value chains. And now they find themselves faced off with a very different China. Now China can develop its own iPhones. Uh, it can also assemble them. It doesn't really need the United States anymore. So you have this uh, the decoupling. De, de, de so it's, it's a bit hard to see how the competition will go. First, it looks like they were competing for different positions on global value chains. But now you see this complete decoupling. That is, the United States doesn't want to rely on China anymore. China doesn't want to rely on the United States anymore. Uh, so. Uh, so the United States trying to hold on to its top tier while China's climbing up and <laughs> taking everything. Uh, but you also have this new trend by the by the high tech co- uh, countries that uh, uh, the uh, the traditional competition they had or relationship with uh, low wage countries it doesn't exist anymore because well it does still exist but there's more and more trend now towards uh, with new uh, technologies that allow you to reshore production. Uh, through robotics, uh, suddenly you don't have this same international distribution of power. So, how will countries uh, exercise power over each other uh, in the in 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 the in the future as this uh, industrial revolution uh, continues to take off? Now, uh, so uh, so yes, again, I think the the tensions between the United States and China will really heat up to a great extent. What's interesting to look at is some of the other players, such as uh, such as Russia, for example, uh, because it's um, uh, I argue they're pursuing a different strategy that of technological preparedness. That is, they don't need to compete directly with the Chinese or the Americans. They just need to have all the their own domestic technological platforms and introduce their own domestic versions in in into it. So they they're already doing it. They're developing their own smartphones. They have you know they decouple from. Uh, the Android system, they, you know, they, they, well, what many people don't realize in Russia is, uh, un- unlike the, the other European countries, uh, that Google is not the biggest one. Amazon is not the biggest one. They have all their own domestic platforms. Facebook's not the biggest one. Um, you know, WhatsApp's not the biggest one. They have uh, Telegram. So they have all their own platforms. So they, they, they're trying to build on this in a partnership with China. Um, so, uh, it's, uh, I, I think there will be a big shift because of uh, to, yeah, to win over these middle powers, if you want. Because since the Cold War came to an end, I think the United States was focused to a great extent in uh, developing a Europe without Russia. So I- integrating all of the European continent under US leadership, uh, but kind of excluding Russia from that Europe. And now what they've seen, especially since 2014, is uh, by achieving that goal, uh, by pushing Russia out of Europe, they're effectively being pushed now towards China. And this is uh, creating some concern in Washington. So you're seeing more signs now coming out of Washington that uh, perhaps uh, you're having, you're having this uh, confrontation against both the Russians and the Chinese is uh, becoming a bit of a disaster because uh, uh, now China and Russia are becoming allies in all but name. Uh, also, Technological partnership is very much at the core of this. So, um, so I think you will see more of this great power uh, rivalry uh, being about technologies. Uh, again, this is the main goal now. For example, Russia—they're trying to decouple from all the Americans' technologies, all their platforms, and instead link themselves up with China. 
uh, even space exploration. You see, you know, the, let's cut from the Americans and go with China instead. So you're seeing at all all levels uh, from e-commerce, uh, mobile phones, uh, yeah, all, all the way to space exploration. So it's really, uh, yeah, the, the competition for a technological platform and avoiding dependencies on other technologies is becoming a very central focus now of a great power competition. And uh, I guess my, my last question would be, I know your research focus is uh, Eurasia, and I'm always fascinated, fascinated by the topic of global governance, which you talk about uh, towards the end of your book. Uh, and you write that nations are fragmenting, uh, I think, into regional uh, constructs with interregionalism, the new hope for building a future system of uh, global governance. China and Russia are seeking to integrate uh, various regional formats and harmonize interests under the greater Eurasia initiative or sort of like a Eurasian uh, union. It seems that, you know, the world will be divided into regional uh, geoeconomic blocks. Um, and so are, are we going to see this? We have the European Union now. We have the African Union. We have the South American Union. We have NAFTA, which is now NAFTA 2.0 with the USMCA. Um, so did you envision like the future, this world of regional blocks that are unified, not just economically, but moving towards, you know, like a political uh, unification. Uh, is that going to be, is that a trend going forward? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, sin since uh, the Second World War, you have kind of had the West established, which was the United States and the Europeans. Now you had already the first regions, uh, um, like Europe forming as a region within this partnership. But that was also the unipolar era that followed. So the, the Europeans were seeking yeah, the, to see collective bargaining power under the European Union, not to decouple from the Americans, but rather to have more synergy, uh, not synergy, more symmetry, sorry, in, in the relations. Uh, so, so they wouldn't, uh, yeah, be, so yeah, it's more, more of an equal partnership. But still, it was uh, very much committed to the idea of the unipolar order. So the West collectively would, uh, would more or less call the shots around the world. Now, uh, what you see now is, uh, well, a lot of the regionalism that the United States set up had this fit within the unipolar structure. That is, uh, you know, Europe uh, aligned under the United States, East Asia, different partnerships, primarily through Japan, also aligned under U.S. leadership now. Uh, the main challenge was um, uh, both Russia and China uh, in this system believe they didn't have any proper um, uh, political uh, subjectivity. That is, they, they were essentially objects uh, that had to follow what the United States said, uh, but they didn't really have a voice in the system. So, so now you see them uh, aspiring to challenging this uh, the dominance of this transatlantic partnership with uh, what they now define as Greater Eurasia, which means integrating every yeah, anything on the Great or Eurasian continent into one one big uh, uh, club, if you want. So in, anything from Europe to Asia, all of it together. Now, obviously, this will be based also mostly on technological platforms, which is uh, if you integrate the economies, then uh, create economic dependencies, then usually political loyalties follow thereafter. Which is why the United States is so worried about, in this greater Eurasian format, the Chinese technologies being, uh, such as 5G, of Huawei being implemented in Europe. Because uh, as the Europeans grow more and more dependent on, Ameri on the Chinese, uh, they're less likely to follow the American lead. So, uh, so uh, there is this, uh, uh, I guess, the way we looked at globalization before, which was to some extent Americanization, the world integrated under free markets. 
under U.S. leadership. Now you see, I guess, more breaking uh, breaking into regions, and uh, I think uh, 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 globalization then would seek to yeah find some way of cooperating between these regions, which is what you see now, for example, between China and Russia. China insists that uh, Russia insists that the uh, China and Russia would cooperate together, but uh, again, Russia wants to cooperate through the Eurasian Economic Union and China. So partnership between those two to have more uh, equal relations, much like the European Union wanted this collective bargaining power to cooperate with Americans. And now they're also seeking to find a way of pulling uh, the Europeans a bit closer as well. So um, so I think it's uh, yeah somewhat of a fragmentation of what globalization has been. So instead of being centralized, it's going to grant it more into regions cooperating. And also it will be more and more uh, multipolar in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, well, not, not, not unipolar anymore. And um, it, it will have a great influence, especially here in Europe, because uh, the U.S. priorities are shifting. Now that, uh, you know, U.S. is looking more towards China as its main rival, uh, what, what are the Europeans going to do? The U.S. will demand more and more um, a geo-economic loyalty from the Europeans. So don't buy, don't trade with Iran, don't buy Russian gas, don't use Chinese technologies. Meanwhile, the Americans will be able to deliver less in terms of material uh, gains or security for the Europeans. So at the same time, then, while the Americans may be able to give less and demand more of the Europeans, the Europeans are now shifting more towards prioritizing strategic autonomy, saying, no, 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 uh, I mean, from France, Germany, they're all saying the same thing. We can't follow in the American footsteps anymore. We have to be able to act as a, as a sovereign entity or sovereign Europe, as they call it now. So so it's very, uh, yeah, it's very much, uh, uh, yeah, I guess uh, fra fragmentation <laughs> would be the, uh, the, the right words. So, uh, and it's... Um, it's difficult to see how the Americans will react. I guess uh, if, if I was advising Washington, I would say that, you know, the international distribution of power is already shifting. What it should do is negotiate a multipolar system where the United States can be effectively the first among equals, because what it's doing now is, is very problematic. It's uh, trying to uh, maintain the unipolar system, uh, but in the process, uh, by not facilitating multipolar system, it sees countries from... Uh, you know, Russia, China, and others coming together, uh, developing a multipolar system in opposition to the United States. And that's very unfortunate uh, for the U.S. And um, uh, furthermore, in order to uphold this uh, economic loyalties, it's also now coercing its allies more and more. Uh, so again, this told its allies not to join the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, don't use their technologies. As I mentioned, don't trade with the Russians, uh, Iranians. And uh, don't buy um, Russian weapons. And one after another, you see countries breaking this. So from India to Turkey, they're all uh, yeah, essentially defying the United States because they want to act as sovereign entities. But in that process, the more the U.S. punishes its allies and its adversaries <coughs> for, for failing to follow the U.S. leadership, the more they recognize that they need uh, to reduce their dependence on the U.S. So it's, a very, uh, it's an unfortunate development because I... The, uh, I think it would be good for the world, for the United States to still have a very central uh, position. But again, even the European Union now are defining its most important objective to have strategic autonomy, which is a nice word for saying less dependence on the United States. 
so, and again, this is also what's driving uh, Chinese and Russian policy. So uh, I think it would be, as we fragment into this multipolar world, it would be better if, um, yeah, the United States would find some way of working towards, uh, yeah, uh, first among equal <laughs> formats. Yeah, because otherwise it could create friction that could lead spiral, you know, again, into into big uh, problems. What I liked about your book was that it was a very level-headed uh, and sober uh, analysis. You know, some books uh, on this topic will veer to, you know, this end of the world dystopian, you know, world war scenario. Others are way too utopian and, and you know, pie in the sky. But you, you gave a really kind of like level-headed analysis and said, well, it can go it can go both ways. So I guess we'll just have to see how things pan out and work towards, you know, ha- keeping our, our freedoms as much as we can. Uh, you are on Twitter. Are there any um, websites uh, or other books or projects that we should uh, know about? Uh, yes, I have another book coming out uh, later this uh, year, uh, I guess in August, September. Uh, so the title is... Uh, Europe as the Western Peninsula of Greater Eurasia, which is uh, somewhat what we uh, discussed now, which is uh, the ch- efforts by China and Russia to um, <coughs> pull Europe a little bit towards this Greater Eurasian Partnership, uh, with in which technology is uh, yeah, a central feature as well. So you see the Europeans a little bit stuck between the transatlantic partnership with the US and this Greater Eurasian uh, a region which are trying to build with new strategic industries, new transportation corridors, new financial instruments, and pull in the Europeans. So that's uh, uh yeah, that will be out in uh, I, I, I think September, but uh, can have to double check that. So in a sense, Europe has become the object uh, of this new, new, uh, great game, <laughs> like a kind of a reversal. Um, and I think your previous book was on Russian conservatism that was also recently published. Uh, so. Yeah. I definitely recommend people uh, follow you, uh, Dr. Deason, on, on Twitter. Uh, and you have interesting commentary there, uh, as well as your op-eds uh, that you write and your your books as well, Great Power um, uh, and the Fourth Industrial Revolution, Great Power Politics. Thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.